Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty, hosted by Jody Katz, founder and creative director of Base Beauty Creative Agency. Hey, everybody. It's Jody Katz, your host of Where Brains Meet Beauty podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in today. This week's episode features Julie Wald. She is the founder and chief wellness advisor of Namaste New York. And if you missed last week's episode, it was a special live recording at our podcast and residence program, Saks Fifth Avenue's flagship in New York City. The episode was with Eric Butterbaugh, who is the world-renowned floral designer and fragrance expert. And if you'd like to join us at our next live recording at Saks, please visit our website at wherebrainsmeetbeauty.com and our podcast at Where Brains Meets Beauty podcast to hear about future live recordings. I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Where Brains Meet Beauty. I'm super excited to be sitting across from Julie Wald. She is the founder and chief wellness officer of Namaste New York. Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty. Thank you for having me. We are sitting together in our podcast recording studio in our new office, and we were just talking about um, how many podcasts Julie's been on and if they've been face-to-face or over the phone. And you told me they've all been over the phone. Yes, yes, yes. And this is really... Really wonderful. So thanks for having me. I used to do all of ours over the phone because I just didn't want to be hassled with the like the logistics of getting to be in the same room with people, which is the hardest part. And then I had um, one of my episodes I recorded face-to-face because there were two people. I'm like, how am I going to do two guests over the phone? It felt like it would be really insane. And after that, I'm like, oh, I'm never going back. It affects the quality of the connection and conversation for sure. Right. And that's what this is all about. Absolutely. So we're here to get to know you and get to know what Namaste New York is all about. But let's start um, at the beginning of your career. Okay, so my guess is um, the beginning of your career, you did not think you'd end up as a chief wellness officer. No, I did not. Not even close. I actually thought I was on the road to be a, really a mind-body psychotherapist. That was that was my vision at the time. And I, um, I started off as a clinical social worker, working in medical environments, mental health environments, with children, adults, geriatric populations, severely mentally ill, um, really the whole gamut. But, um, you know, being in the social work profession, I, I ended up in a lot of disenfranchised neighborhoods working with a lower income population who were really needing mental health support. And that was where my heart was and my passion, but it was stressful. Tell me about those stresses. You know, it was, um, it was really intense for me at the time to hold the space for people who are in just a lot of pain for, for a lot of really good reasons. Um, coming from very challenging backgrounds. And I, you know, I always say that our greatest strength it can also be our greatest weakness. And um, in this case, I'm not sure that it was a weakness, but I think that part of what drove me to that career is that I'm a very sort of heart-driven person and, and open-hearted. And I think that I just took a lot with me. I took a lot home with me at night and and started to feel the effects of holding that holding that stress and that pain kind of in my own in my own self and and knew that I needed to find a way to process that in a healthy in a healthy way. So what does that look like um coming home and like just feeling exhausted or like talking about your clients like 
you know, to your friends nonstop? Like, what does it look like when you bring your work home with you when you're a social worker? Yeah, good question. So, um, so it really looks like, you know, sort of, I, I sort of picture it now getting on, on the subway up in the Bronx and kind of making my way back downtown to, to my little downtown apartment at the time. And, and just, just starting initially to kind of feel it in my body, you know, just feel um, feel the stress in my body and and the heaviness of of all that I had kind of taken in that day. And then at the time, I was young. I was living with roommates and and, you know, always sort of respecting client confidentiality, but but really needing to kind of share some of what some of what I heard. and um, and then, you know, it sort of dawned on me that, yes, my roommates were awesome and and supportive, but to be honest, you know, they didn't really know what to say. I mean, I was dealing with suicidal teenagers and adolescents, um, you know, people who had gone through a lot of trauma and abuse, and, and that... Um, that was something that I needed to sort of process mentally and emotionally, but I also felt like I needed to sort of move it through my body as well. And um, I got really into yoga and meditation and finding sort of like after work activities that that helped me digest everything. So why do you think you were able to transition this dress to yoga and not to like Swedish fish? <laughs> Good question. I... Um, you know, I've always been drawn towards health and wellness, towards Eastern philosophy. It's always been sort of a curious, a curious thing for me. And um, I, I, I more than anything, I think, wanted to be able to continue to kind of fine-tune my instrument to be able to actually help people. And I guess at the time, I didn't realize it, but I was wise enough to know that sort of more self-destructive coping mechanisms wouldn't be the secret to success, especially if I was the one that was trying to be able to help people heal. Um, And so I felt like really this work put me on my own healing journey. So as you're talking about transitioning from like a stressful day, getting on the subway, going back home, um, it just made me think about being in my 20s, leaving work. And um, I would race home. So, like, I let's say I lived on the Upper East Side at this point. I was coming from Flatiron, and I would like, like, get walk so as fast as I could to the subway, get on that subway, race as fast as I could, walk as fast as I could home. If I was like make a pit stop at a store, I'd like race through it. I was always like, I would get home and I'd be like sweating. And I don't know why I was doing that at the time. You know, it's just like my normal. But maybe it was like all the pent up stuff, right? I didn't know what to do with it, so it just like propelled me to walk as fast as I can and I'm a pretty fast walker. And then I like be racing home to do nothing to do nothing, right? So in retrospect, I'm like, what was the race for? Why was I rushing? But maybe it was all this stuff just bottled up from the day. Totally. You were processing it and and sort of trying to, you know, needing to sort of vent it out somehow. And you know, one of the things that I think about sometimes now is that I at the time, you know, this was pre pre-iPhone. And so there really were no distractions for me. Mm-hmm. So I had to have this super intense day, 
get on the train, and then just sit with it. I mean, it, there was nothing to look at, nothing. I mean, maybe I carried a book with me at the time, but but the truth was is there was really, I really had to kind of be in my own skin and kind of feel all the feels, as they say, around whatever transpired that day. And, and I think that... Um, that now it's a little bit different for people, that we're able to to find, um, for better or worse, you know, ways to sort of distract ourselves from the feelings of our day. And and that's been on my mind a lot, actually, thinking back to those days and kind of how how we <clears throat> how we had to hold hold things in a way that's different today. Right. So is it working in our favor to pop open a screen as a distraction, or does it work against us? I mean, in my opinion, it works against us. Um, but I also think that, you know, I'm not an extremist. So I think that everything in moderation and and I do recognize that it's a new world and and I have, you know, teenage children. And so I'm I'm very tuned into kind of how how the world has changed. And the fact that as much as, you know, having to sit with all of this was um was was really powerful and kind of pushed me to to grow a tremendous amount you know that that creating enough space for that i think is important but recognizing that you know that that the reality is is that that we do have all these distractions in this day and age and so how we approach kind of making space for processing our feelings um may look very different today than it once did. Right. So I'm now thinking about I, I coming off of a very stressful summer of work, um, some just good stress and some really bad stress. Like, um, and I um, really coped by like stomping my feet and, you know, talking about in therapy and stuff, but with catching up on my vice, which is like the Real Housewives. Mm-hmm. And um, I like was so grateful for the distraction. It made me so happy to dive down deep into the, the nonsense of these shows and fill my time with it. Like, I knew I was consciously doing it. I wasn't just watching TV. I was like, I'm doing this because it feels so good to me now when I'm feeling, like, sad or, you know, stressed or overwhelmed. Um, and I, like, really, I think for the first time, appreciated the distractions of entertainment. Absolutely. And I think that that's <clears throat> really valuable. I think that I think that the key word there that you said is conscious, you know, and just to the extent that we can recognize that these, you know, that these activities are just sort of, you know, relaxing and they enable us to be entertained and kind of get out of our own head for a little while, that that's, that's beautiful. And we need that some of the time, as long as we're conscious of what we're doing and it's not the only way that we're kind of handling our day, then, you know, then engaging and and consuming in that way can can really be can really be okay, right? So I think of all the people on New Jersey Transit watching TV shows, you know, on their phones. Like they make the commute joyful because they're catching up on something they really love. Um, so let's talk about your career as um, a social worker. How did you transition from social work to doing what you're doing now? So as I said, I was really engaged in kind of the journey of learning about myself through the lens of yoga and Eastern wisdom and meditation. And that ultimately evolved into me wanting to integrate that work into my work as a social worker. So I really recognized that um, so many of my clients didn't have the tools or the verbal skills or the awareness to be able to 
articulate themselves and 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 use language as a way to process and heal and that that we needed to approach their journey from kind of a multi-dimensional perspective and so I kind of went renegade as a clinical social worker and started integrating with specific clients that I felt really needed a different type of approach, um, integrating this work into my sessions with them, my clinical sessions with them. I didn't tell my supervisors at the time. I, I It was sort of top secret, but I... But I very deeply felt that this was sort of the best use of, of the time that we had. And um, from there, I really ended up beginning to to teach a little yoga and meditation, moonlighting, kind of early mornings and, and evenings as a way to not only supplement my income, but just continue to evolve my my skills in that in that realm. So when you were um, incorporating these rogue techniques, you were like doing yoga in your office, like with your clients? I was doing yoga in my office with my clients. I, um, I remember one client in particular was a 16-year-old African-American male who had been kind of mandated to therapy for um, having very aggressive outburst at a teacher. He actually threw a chair at a teacher. And I always say that if he happened to have a gun on him, he would have shot the gun. It was an impulse. And he was full of pain and full of rage, and um, rightfully so. He he had had a horrible childhood and endured intense abuse and had, you know, drug-addicted parents and, you know, a father that had been incarcerated for most of his life. And so he, um, he, I, he, I'll never forget this kid. And he used to come into my office and I'm just looking at him thinking, I I have this opportunity to try to help this kid in some way, shape, or form with the goal being that, you know, he doesn't hurt anybody else and that he, you know, he doesn't hurt himself and that he can keep himself out of jail. And, And I just so clearly knew that the medium of, of clinical psychotherapy you know, wasn't wasn't the key there. And so I had to get creative. And so I started um, really teaching him about how to build awareness in his body around, you know, some of the feelings and the sensations that would come up before he would do something that would get him into trouble um, and began to actually teach him yoga in my teeny tiny little, literally my office was smaller than this little room that we're in right now. And, um, and I had him doing handstands and crow and, and kind of, it was, it was partially to engage him and build trust and build relationship, which was really powerful because that was just a lot more fun than sort of feeling like you're being forced to talk when you're a 16 year old boy. Um, but it also simultaneously was kind of teaching him about how to use his body as a tool to to calm himself and and to work, um, you know, to work in a way that could could keep him out keep him out of trouble and keep him from hurting people. And um, how do you um, track progress for someone, you know, who doesn't want to talk to you? Like, are you able to see a difference? I guess, what what metric do you use, right? Six months later, a year later, however long you're spending with him from day one to the last day. Yeah. uh, He, you know, he was amazing. So it took a while for me to start to feel like he actually... So he was mandated to come see me, right? So if he didn't come see me, he would end up in, like, juvie and be 
in, basically incarcerated. So he um, he had to come, but what ended up happening over time was that he began to look forward to the sessions. And I could tell that he looked forward to the sessions because he'd walk in, he'd say, hey, Miss Julie, and he'd give me a high five, he'd need a smile on my face and that, and on his face. And that was sort of the polar opposite of what the beginning of our work looked like, where he would literally walk into the office and and not say anything and be completely silent for the entire time. And, and you know, that alone was so huge because even having a healthy, positive relationship with somebody that showed up every week and was happy to see you, meaning that I was happy to see him, for him, that that was really powerful. It was the modeling of what, of what that kind of a relationship could potentially look like because he really wasn't able to even cultivate his relation relationships like that with with teachers or a- really anybody in his community. And so it was really a gift for me um, that he was sort of forced and mandated because it gave me the opportunity to build this trust. And then over time, he, you know, for the for the duration of our work together, he stayed out of trouble. Now, I don't know, you know, where he is now and exactly what the ultimate outcomes were. But he was in, you know, he was in no trouble in the year that we were together, whereas before that, he had had continual repeated problems. You know, he he was just constantly, constantly getting himself into very, very bad situations. And, um... Yeah, he told me that he used to do yoga in his bedroom, um, which was amazing. And I even by the end, you know, got him to do some very brief meditations and and work with his breath, which was really, really powerful. And I have to think that we planted some seeds there that he could he could hopefully call on, you know, throughout throughout the years. And when did the um the seed for Namaste New York? Um, get planted? So kind of somewhere within that time period where I was doing this work as a social worker and moonlighting as a yoga and meditation teacher, funny enough, I, you know, while I was working with New York's most disenfranchised populations as a clinical social worker, I ended up as a yoga and meditation teacher finding myself through a series of connections um, in the living rooms of captains of industry and celebrities and some of the most brilliant, successful, prominent New Yorkers. And so it was really intense because I used to, you know, fast track a few years later after I was going down to my apartment venting to my girlfriends. um, Next thing you know, I was getting on the subway and getting off on the Upper East Side and running up and down Park Avenue and Fifth Avenue teaching private yoga from, you know, 6 to 9 p.m. or or from, you know, early mornings, 5.30 a.m. to 8 a.m. kind of thing. And it, um, it really evolved from there. That was that was the beginning and slowly my personal practice became very robust and I um I fell in love with that work and decided that it was time to pause my pause my social work career because my husband and I had this idea for this business called Namaste New York and that was back in 2003 and I you know I really kind of took a leap of faith at that point. And we began, 
we began then. Um, number one, I'm kind of amazed that name Namaste New York wasn't taken right. by another business <laughs> by then. Um, were you surprised by that too? Kind of, yeah. It was born out of um, kind of a 9-11 sentiment, actually. It was, it was really about, you know, Namaste means the light in me sees and honors the light in you. And so it was really about kind of, uh, and, and sort of interestingly, many of our clients and my personal clients at the very, very beginning were in the financial industry. And um, many of them were on a healing journey and suddenly were open to practices like yoga and meditation where, you know, prior to the trauma of 9-11, I'm not sure that they would have would have really sought that out in the same way. And so we... Um, that was really the inspiration of the name was, you know, we're healing. New York is healing. We're healing. All these people are healing. And and that's that's the purpose. So um, is your husband in the business of the healing arts? He is. We still run our business together. He is our chief operating officer, and he is really kind of runs, runs, he drives the ship. <laughs> and he's a yoga teacher as well? He is also a yoga teacher. And your kids, are they yoga enthusiasts? You know, they um they're they're definitely yoga familiarists. <laughs> you know, they they definitely speak the language and I've been pretty conscious not to sort of shove it down their throats because I I know enough about psychology to know that that wouldn't be the most effective approach, but I think as a parent, it's it's really about just um modeling and and sharing and inviting and trusting that that they're going to have their journey. And to the extent that, you know, a formal yoga practice is a part of that journey would be amazing. But um, I'm also not the kind of person that thinks there's one answer. You know, is yoga the answer for everybody? Not necessarily, you know, is meditate. You know, I, I think that that these things are really personal journeys. And the most important thing is just to um, to have an understanding about what's out there and to plant enough seeds that that what needs to grow can grow. So let's talk about the fact that now you run a business that helps people heal, right, through yoga, meditation, and other techniques. Um, but you are also an entrepreneur. So um, I'm an entrepreneur, and my head is crazy often, even with, you know, breathing and meditation and a lot of, I have a, I have a, I have a village, right? I have my therapist. I have my coach. I have my other coach, right? So it takes a village. <laughs> so, like, um, now you're sort of, you're in the shoes of your stressed out clientele. Oh, yeah. It's really funny because I remember, um, I remember thinking, you know, working with clients who seemingly sort of had everything. You know, they they were successful and educated and and wealthy and gorgeous clothes and and healthy children for the most part. And I'd think to myself, you know, why are they struggling? You know, why is it so hard? And, um, you know, I was at a different stage of life at the time. And now, you know, fast forward 20 years and yeah, it is, you know, I am in the heart of it. I relate 100%. I am, I am that person who, who needs a village, who needs a team, who needs to figure out how to support myself mentally and physically to, you know, continue to perform on the level that I want to business-wise and take care of my family in the way that feels aligned with my personal integrity. And so it's, um, you know, and I never in a million years, if you had asked me, 
back in the day that if I would be an entrepreneur, I would have said, are you kidding? I mean, that is, I'm not a businesswoman, um, but here I am, an entrepreneur and a businesswoman. And yes, you know, you know, the one thing um, that has been really interesting is that I have learned more about business than I ever thought that I would and, um, and really enjoyed it in a, in a way that I, I don't think I ever dreamed would be possible. I um I put this idea of business and anything that I thought was businessy in this bucket. I'm like, that's so not for me. Like a long time ago, like I don't like right. th- those things, those marketing terms that are like all about numbers and stuff. I'm like, I'm I don't touch that. I don't do that. Um, finance, I don't touch that. And then fast forward to where I am now, I'm like, oh, it'd be so cool to be in investment banking, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like acquire, you know, helping brands acquire other brands, right? Like that's actually like, wow, I think I'm actually probably really well suited to private equity or investment banking when like that used to feel so strange to me. It's so interesting. Because you just learn that like it's not about the number, right? It's about, everything's about people. Totally. That's it. That's the bottom line. And yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I think that, on an entrepreneurial path, as long as you um, can sort of understand that that you're surfing and that it's it can be intense and that you know there's there's inevitable sort of highs and lows, but that through all of that you are growing and stretching in ways that you never dreamed that you would um, is is kind of inspiring and exciting. So let's talk about that because. Um you know, it's like free therapy for you to be sitting here with me. So I'm going to take advantage of it. <laughs> um, I still to this day have a hard time with um, the lows. Mm. The highs, I've worked really hard to honor them. Like I used to just like ride right past them. Like a great thing would happen. I'd be like, good, it happened. And I just move on. Now we ring a bell. We do a little dance. We put a candle in cupcakes. Like we honor like even small highs just to, like, imprint on my brain that, like, good things happen all the time. Um, but the lows catch me by surprise. Even though I know it's a roller coaster, um, I really keep forgetting that it's not all, like, the swishy, fast part of the roller coaster where the wind is whipping through your hair and you're laughing, like, that there are times when I'm hanging upside down on the loop, right? And I don't like that feeling. How can I get my body to accept that there are lows? Mm. You know, I think, you know, it's expectation management. So really kind of, you know, continually reminding yourself that that the nature of life, the nature of the human experience is that there are highs and lows. And and I I saw that firsthand with, you know, my social work clients and my, you know, captain of industry clients. The the most amazing thing was that they were equally as happy and as miserable. It it had nothing to do with how much money they had. You know, there was deep pain and and, and incredible joy universally in those populations. And, And the light bulb was just like, oh, that's life. Like, you can't escape that no matter how much money you have, no matter how educated you are or what, whoever you are. Like, the nature of life is that there are highs and lows and ups and downs. And those lows are really those growth opportunities. I had a therapist back in the day um, that was extraordinary, and she used to call it an AFCO. Am I allowed to swear? Sure. Because she used to say, it, AFCO stands for another fucking growth opportunity. <laughs> so 
Anytime that there was a situation where you're just thinking, how is this happening? This is so hard and so painful. And I, I, you know, it's like, oh, this is an AFCO. This is another fucking growth opportunity. Great. Did I want this? No. Is this just inevitable? Absolutely. And, you know, so that's, that's helped. And then the other thing that I think about a lot is just this idea of good luck and bad luck is all mixed up because you never know what's going to happen next. I actually read that. It's sort of like a Zen type of idea. Explain and I, it to me. It's um, so, so good luck and bad luck is all mixed up because you never know what's going to happen next. So, so something bad happens, like maybe you miss your train. You know, and then all of a sudden you're so pissed and how did that happen? And then the next thing you know, like your long lost friend that you haven't seen in 20 years shows up on the platform. Or, you know, it's it's kind of like we think we know. We think we know exactly where we should be, when we should be there. And, and you know, and, and we think we have everything under control, but we don't. And there are forces in life that are going to happen and something's going to happen that's sort of seemingly bad, but we really never know kind of how that, how that is going to, to, to shape our journey. You know, it's, it's like a terrible breakup. You break up with someone and you think your life is over. And then the next thing you know, you know, a door opens, you meet a human being, you find another opportunity somewhere far, far away that you never would have looked into had you not ended that relationship. So the truth is, is that we just don't know. And some of those really painful experiences are doors to some of the most amazing things that can happen in life. And how can I um, teach myself that when something, let's in quotes, bad happens, like we, we lose business, right? We mm-hmm. lose a client. Um, why, why or how can I make it not feel like... I, I feel in my, intellectually these things are like, it's not a big deal. There's more work to come. The universe is giving a chance to, you know, have a little more free time or clean up some organizational things or whatever. In my heart, it doesn't feel that way. In my heart, it feels really painful. How can I get my heart to catch up to where my head is, which is, like you said, an opportunity. Here's an opportunity to do something else at this moment or make room for something new. Yeah. Um, I'm working on that with myself a lot right now. It's a big one for me. And I, you know... I'm not necessarily one of those people that thinks like, you know, that, that would say out loud, like everything happens for a reason, even though I'm saying it right now, but, but it's not, it's not really sort of part of my verbiage and normal day to day. But, um, but I do think that kind of working on some feeling of trust, you know, just that word trust comes up for me a lot. Like I just have to trust. I just have to trust. Like I know that I'm leaving it all out on the field. I know that I'm working my butt off. I know that I'm really and truly doing the best that I can. And and as long as I know that, then there's sort of a letting go that naturally has to happen that is that trust. If I don't feel like I'm giving it my best, if I feel like I'm half-assing, if I feel like I'm not really kind of you know, that's a different conversation. But if I really feel like I've given it all that I've got, then I got to let go. I got to trust that that this is this is the journey that I'm supposed to be on and and that I don't know all the answers anyways. So that's the word that my coach uses. Like, Jody, mm-hmm. just trust. Just trust. Um, so maybe this is the little reminder I needed. I've gotten better. I made a lot of progress. Like things would happen and I would really feel like the um, sky was falling. And now things happen, and I'm like, okay, 
Like, sometimes it feels like a punch to the gut. Sometimes my fingers and my hands get a little tingly. Um, sometimes I'll lose sleep, but it doesn't feel, like, as if I, I have to question everything I'm doing. Like, we're no good. We don't know what we're doing. There's no need for us. You know, like, I used to really think, like, um, an event happening meant um, I'm not worthy or I'm not talented, right? And I've gotten away from that. Now I just want to get to be a little bit more at ease with the fact that there are highs and lows. Totally. And that it's okay to fail. It's okay to have situations that didn't turn out the way that you wanted them to. And 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 that that's, that's just the nature of it. And that any, you know, any great successful business person will tell you that that failure is an inevitable part of part of that path. Right. Maybe I'll start ringing the bell for when one of these AFCOs happens. I love it. Because I on the other side of all these AFCOs, now I'll use that. Thank you for sharing it with me. Mm-hmm. Um, is always like an, something amazing. There's always like a pot of gold or the rainbow or, you know, the fairies. Like they're always there at the end of this. Um, I always see something clear and get a huge opportunity. But the going through it is still so uncomfortable. So maybe if I ring the bell, I'll remind myself that there is an, an AFCO. That's brilliant. I love that. And, and you know, it's, um, you know, it's, Oh, shoot. I just lost my thought. I had a great thought about—oh, it's the small high—you mentioned it, and and it, and it made me think. The other thing that I do do to help with those lows is, is those, like, little high fives. And I think that when you have, like, big goals and you know you're really working towards something big, you know, it's it feels like you're climbing Mount Everest, and it feels like, you know— it can feel very tedious and long. And when you when you build into your consciousness and your routine the ability to sort of celebrate the small wins, like somebody said yes. Was it like the big yes, like the ultimate yes? Maybe not. But every little yes is also amazing. And so how can you kind of continually give yourself those little high fives, like you ring your bell, um, and that that helps. That helps kind of that that grind. And um, I'm sure, like, everybody wants to know what your process is. Like, are you waking up at 4 in the morning to meditate? Like, walk us through a little bit of, like, what a day is like for you. Yeah. So I I have kids that have to be, like, you know— up and running really early. And so, therefore, I've had to put myself on a really early schedule, which is not natural for me. I'm, I'm sort of, I'm not one of those super early morning people, but I've but I've sort of become one in this stage of my life. And, and that's, you know, it, it's sort of, while it starts in the morning, it really starts the night before at bedtime. Um, so, my routine is that I, I keep my phone plugged in in my kitchen. Uh, I do not allow it into my bedroom in the evening hours. And Does your husband have his phone in the bedroom? You know, he—this is an ongoing thing because he likes to read on his iPad at night. Um, and so he's kind of sitting on an iPad reading. But I i really—I'm too—I I have an addictive personality. So, like, if I have my phone there, there's no way that I'm not kind of falling down the rabbit hole. And so I just know myself well enough to say this is not something that, that needs to be in my bed. And so that stays in my kitchen. I set an old-school Amazon, like, alarm clock that I bought on Amazon. It's like a travel alarm clock, and it's set for 5.30 in the morning. And I try to get, you know, I sort of have a bedtime of 10 o'clock. Um, I can just about get my teen, my 14-year-old to go to bed by then. And so I, you know, 
I wake up at 5.30. I make myself, I'm sort of obsessed with this drink called mud water right now. It's kind of a mix between all of these mushrooms and some chai tea and some cacao. And I love coffee too. Um, I'm not anti-coffee by any stretch, but this is feeling really nourishing to me right now. So I drink this drink and Do you I, make it yourself? I you... make it myself. I mean, it's 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 like a powder. Oh, okay. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I'm plugging this cool company. Uh, and so they, so I make this cool this drink. Um, and I bring my drink onto my yoga mat. And I basically just sit there and drink my drink and kind of start to roll around a little bit and stretch and breathe. It is not kind of checking the fitness box by any stretch of the imagination. It's really just kind of waking up, stretching, moving, drinking. It feels very kind of nurturing. It feels pretty feminine to me. It's, uh, it feels good. And then once I finish my drink, I meditate. And I sit, and I'm, I'm sort of a mindfulness kind of girl. Um, but that changes depending. Sometimes I do more of a metta meditation, which is loving-kindness meditation, kind of depending on what I'm needing. But I really think of that morning practice as my mirror. It's it's helps me kind of tune in to where I'm at and, and feel, you know, what am I entering the day with? Am I anxious? Am I tired? You know, am I excited? W- where am I? And and sometimes I'm worrying about one, two, or three kids, or I'm having feelings towards my husband or whatever it might be. And it's just really good to kind of get that data. It's like looking in the internal mirror, I like to say. I'm sort of looking in the mirror. I'm sort of thinking and noticing what's what's on my plate. And then it helps me be much less reactionary, particularly from the hours of like, 6.15 to 7 when I'm trying to get three kids ready and out the door, which can result in screaming and other impulsive behavior. So if I, you know, if I'm able to tune in and kind of recognize how I'm entering the day, I find that I'm much more centered during that that period of my day along with kind of my work day. So you but, just talked about different types of meditations. Is that like, do you use a meditation app? Or are these just things that are in your head? Like, how do you do this? Um, both. So I've been practicing meditation for many, 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 many years. Um, I started back in the 90s and I I really, you know, I meditate mostly on my own, although I have, I love meditation apps and I think that they can be a really supportive tool for people. And, and I use them personally when I'm really feeling like I need some inspiration or some support around my practice. So they're really a tool, but I don't always use them. Um, I would say it's kind of like an occasional app experience. And sometimes just because of my job, I like to do some market research and kind of understand what's going on out there. So that's that's another component. So I sort of dip into those things and to, those tools as well. But usually my meditation is, you know, somewhere between 10 and 20 minutes. And, you know, after that, I sometimes I'll do a little bit more yoga, depending, um, you know, on the day, I may jump on my elliptical for a few minutes or, or try to, to break a sweat. And, you know, after that, it's kind of hitting the ground running with with three kids and, and getting everybody out the door. Do teenagers make their own breakfast? You know, uh, some might. <laughs> <laughs> Mine doesn't. So I uh, I try to put a lot of options out on the table in the morning, and then they can kind of make their breakfast from what's on the table. I put a little yogurt. I put a little granola. I put some hard-boiled eggs. I put some veggies and fruit, and they make their plate. That's a good idea. Yeah. I find that 
the the more conversation you can remove around meals, you know, when things are served family style and there are options out on the table, then, you know, then it kind of eliminates some of that stress. Um, we are going to have to wrap up, but um, my husband spoiled my kids when they were very, very little. And like every breakfast has to be like a hot, elaborate breakfast. <laughs> um, and I can't get them out of this. Like it's impossible. Like if I put a bowl of just like fruit salad in front of them, I I I. I got shunned. I got ignored. My son wouldn't even look at me. Oh, no. <laughs> they want pancakes and eggs. And jelly rolls and French toast. <laughs> and, like, it's really, um, yeah, it's a little crazy in our house for breakfast. But we, we have a system down now. And they're not babies anymore, which makes it easier. Well, thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom with us today. It was so incredible to get to know you. Um, and for our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Julie. Please subscribe to our series on iTunes. And for updates about the show, follow us on Instagram at Where Brains Meet Beauty Podcast. Thanks, Julie. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Where Brains Meet Beauty with Jody Katz. Tune in again for more authentic conversations with beauty leaders.